Hello and welcome to Aaron Wood's IP Show, where I interview top guests from around the world and get their unique perspectives. My name is Aaron Wood and I use my years of experience in the field to get deep into what matters most. Thanks for joining us. Hello, my guest today is Andy Lee, who is a partner at UK law firm Brandsmiths. Andy is a specialist in IP and privacy, and he has an enviable record of success across all types of disputes. So he spoke to us about the recent decision in the Meghan Markle case, which is where she sued the Mail on Sunday for publishing excerpts of her letters to her dad. He also spoke to us about the growth of Brandsmiths, his firm, and developing a new firm into an established player in the market, alongside the dubious fun of high-stakes litigation. Okay, well, Andy, uh, thanks very much for coming on to speak to us. Um, so the uh, the Meghan Markle case, t- I mean, tell me a little bit about the background to it. Yeah, that, uh, well, thanks for having me, Aaron. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, as you know. Um, the, yeah, so the, I mean, the Markle case is, in some senses, it's, it's one of those sort of privacy cases where that it's really, in, it's only really interesting because of the parties involved. Um and a bit like you know, if you look at the death libel case, there's, I mean, there was no law in that. It was all facts, but it got huge attention because he was involved. But, you know, there's been, I think this year 2020 has been a sort of quite an interesting year in the sort of development, if you like, to a degree in the field of privacy and misuse of private information. And I think, I mean, it, it's hard what the Marvel case is about is whether it's whether it's justifiable to print to the to, to the world, in essence, mm. um, largely a full copy of a, a private letter. Yeah, I mean, I without say, the I, consent. I, I I looked at this and I thought, in the nicest possible way, how how do you argue that that letter wasn't private? I mean, is that, well, is that where you came from? It's it's interesting because when um, when the case initially got issued I sort of got a copy of the pleadings from the CE file largely because I was about to talk at UCL a few days later on um, privacy and data and you know when you read the pleadings sort of superficially you think oh well you know I can see what the mail is saying and um, not that necessarily going to win but I can see the arguments there and obviously this is all going to depend on evidence and cross-examination trial. But, you know, the sort of interesting thing about um, well, now Lord Justice Warby's judgment is he, he makes quite clear that he sort of, he talks about, you know, with summary judgment, he, provided you can sort of remove the fog from the lens, you, you know, if you can decide it now, you should. And I think that it was a private letter. It was written to her father. And, and a lot of the males sort of arguments surrounding, you know, whether she had a reasonable expectation of privacy were sort of superficially attractive when they were dressed up, but when you sort of drilled into them and looked at what the law was, I can sort of see why the, well, I can see why the judges entered summary judgment. Now, <laughs> you know, what's quite interesting from it as well is, you know, you get the sort of typical press stories coming out sort of now, oh, this is a blow for freedom of expression and you know, restriction on the free press. And, you know, the, the press are quite interested in that way in, in that, you know, when a case goes their way, it's a victory for freedom of expression. So when the death judgment came out, it was a massive victory for freedom of expression. But when the court sort of restrained the press, it, it's seen as well. This is ludicrous. You know, how on earth can it, why should the courts be stopping us saying what we're saying? But when you actually look at all the cases individually, to me, they're all sort of justified as to why, you know, the press are allowed to say certain things and the press aren't allowed to say certain things. And it all comes back to, you know, the press's role as a watchdog, which is, you know, in all the authorities, they play, they do play a vital part in society of informing the public, keeping a watch on the public and the, and the exercise of power. But, you know, when they sort of go into publishing things really, which are for, sort of to titillate, if you like, readers into make money and clickbait, that sort of stuff. That's when the courts tend to come down on them. Yeah. But I think 
it, I mean, from my point of view, I, I looked at it and thought, well, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I thought, surely if you're the newspaper and you and you've got those letters, there are ways around it. You know, they could have made articles without having to publish those the actual you know uh, full letters or you know most of the letters. They could have done the whole you know sources close to you know the the palace or something, and surely they could have done that, couldn't they? Yeah, well, I, th- I mean, if you, I mean, that is what largely underpins the judgment. The judge says there was just simply no justification for that level of interference with the whole letter. Now, you know, if you look at a couple of the points the mail are running, one was that, you know, the Meghan Markle had made the existence known of the letter and the People article. You know, the letter was mentioned. Um, the judge said, well, that doesn't mean that you effectively and can then publish the full letter. Mm. You know, the whole basis of that was that the, the People article was slightly misleading, um, which, the, which the, you know, the court said, well, it was in one small aspect. But what, that's exactly what the court said. They said, well, you know, Me- Megan's father could have, through the Daily Mail, sought to correct that, but they didn't need to publish the full letter. He could have simply said, well, this is what has happened. This is, this is what actually happened. So, yeah, I you know, remember hearing something about that years all... ago. The whole thing about football players was, you know, or, or you know, all the sort of exposés uh, was, you know, if you're a football player or somebody like that who's in the public eye, be careful what you say. You know, don't make out you've got this fantastic, um, pro, you know, life with your with your, you know, your wife if you're having an affair in the background because they suddenly are able to, you know, p- correct the record. But as you say, it sounds as if uh, Lord Justice Warby um, concluded that actually no, you know, because there wasn't that much to correct. Is that that's is that right? Yeah, and, and look, the the thing about sort of correcting the record is that is a viable basis for publishing things. However, again, it's all about proportionality because you know both Article Ten and Article Eight, which are usually the competing rights, are qualified rights, so they're not absolute. Like I think it's Article Three, which is you know you've got the absolute right not to be tortured, which is sort of unsurprising. You know, Article Eight and Ten they're qualified in the sense they can give way to other rights. But what you're always looking at is proportionality. And, you know, the point about setting the record straight is very, is a good point. I mean, for example, if you look at the Naomi Campbell case, um, you know, the base of that case was she was telling the public, I've never taken drugs, but she was going to Narcotics Anonymous. Now, what the court said in that was the paper was entitled to report the fact that she went to North. Narcotics Anonymous, but she won on the basis that she won on a sort of a separate basis, or should I say a narrow basis, that they'd went too far because what they'd also published was pictures of her leaving. So the court said, well, it was justifiable to correct the record, but the interference went too far. It wasn't proportionate to simply saying, well, she says this, but actually this is the position. They'd published lots of pictures of her entering and leaving. So it, it all comes down, yes, the media can correct a sort of public persona someone's putting forward, that's false. But what is key is that the way they go about that is proportionate. And and again, that was what underpinned Warby's yeah. reasoning here was Don't need to go you didn't far. need to publish the full letter. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. That's Publishing the full letter was, wasn't justified. Yeah, sensationalism. I mean, correct. I guess for me, I mean, the other part that's interesting, I guess, in the whole going around it the way that's ended obviously now that it's a summary judgment because if i remember rightly a couple of months ago there was some there was, was there a, a private uh, application to have the the trial in this moved some way into the future wasn't there i think is that right there was and um, i mean at the time it sort of i mean nobody actually knows what the reasons for that were but i think well, reading she's between the lines, she's pregnant now, isn't she? So I guess yeah, that's exactly. Quite... <laughs> so I think <laughs> I think reading between the lines, the basis of the application was probably well, she's so far, she's a certain far um, period along in her pregnancy, and for her to be subject to sort of cross examination probably isn't the best thing. Um, but one that, what then happened was they they just applied for summary judgment. I think they had sort of in the judgment says new advice from counsel, and Warby says well there's nothing wrong with applying. You, you can apply for summary judgment at any time. You can even apply for it at trial. So, um, you know, it's... It, it's unsurprising, if, really, isn't know, it? If that's what's going on, then certainly you'd imagine to try and save her the, the issue of having to go to and be cross-examined when she's 
you know, potentially quite far gone. Uh, or doing it over video link, I guess, is the other part. Um, it makes sense. Exactly. But, I mean, I suspect that this sort of trial, I mean, if you look at um, if you look at the death case, that that was in person, you know, it lasted sort of 15 days and they all came to court and there was two or three courtrooms set up for them to social distance, distance and, and things like that. I mean, I don't know whether in this case they had in mind that, and it might be in the adjournment judgment, I can't remember, but it, that this was going to be an in-person one. And so you naturally you can think, well, you know, someone who's relatively, I mean, he's pregnant and by the time of the trial he might have been X months pregnant to be travelling from the USA to England and attending court every day is probably not the, the best thing for them, particularly in a you know, what is what would have been a sort of highly tense and sort of stressful trial for her. Um, you know, probably subject to some quite sort of intrusive cross examination. So I can I think again we don't know the exact reason, but I think I think we can all be pretty certain that her pregnancy had something to do with that. I mean, the other thing which I found interesting in the some uh, in the case was that their their reliance on on copyright as well. I mean, is that is that something that surprised you? Have you seen that before? Um, no, I mean, I I mean, particularly when it comes to this sort of handwritten law. I mean, if you look at the Prince of Wales case, I mean, this was effectively a, a rerun of the Prince of Wales diaries. Um, I mean, the it's. It doesn't seem to me surprising they pleaded that in the alternative. I mean, you you might think, well, did they plead that because they thought the privacy case was bad? But I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think they simply thought, well, you know, this is my letter, you know, trapped copyright, we should put that in. You know, it's obviously, it raises completely different sort of, it's a completely different cause of action. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, is the judge sort of found that it's plainly copyright, plainly subsessed, and it was Absolutely. Uh, plainly substantially reproduced. So that's probably why they put that in. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you never know the tactical reasons behind it, but it seemed to me that, I mean, that it was easy. a pretty sensible thing. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I guess on, on reflection, you don't, I, I mean, I guess the point is you don't necessarily think about copyright or other IP rights when you're maybe you do when you're doing a privacy case, but I mean, clearly, that on this particular one, that was going to be you know absent something strange you know it's going to be a slam dunk i know that they've said in the case that there was perhaps a some somebody who assisted in in the drafting of the letter certainly you know checked over it and edited it and the, i think there's some argument about whether or not he had uh joint this, this helper had joint ownership on the letter but it, it was pretty i mean it seemed pretty clear to me that you know, when you thought about it that it was going to be that part of the case was going to be a slam dunk i mean is that what you'd say yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think when you read the judgment, I mean, it, it was interesting. You, if you read the, you know, the mail turned up with five barristers, you know, two silks, um, to argue these points, and you think, well, quite why you need that many barristers for this, I don't know. Um, but then, you know, two of those silks were, you know, sorry, two of those barristers, one silk and one junior, were IP uh, silk and juniors, right. and then there was effectively, um, you know. Uh, sort of privacy silk and then a couple of privacy juniors. So, you know, if you, in some ways you can sort of see why they might have done that, given how important the mail case is, that you've got effectively two causes of action. One of, you know, and it's probably not reasonable for even a top privacy silk to be really sort of um, coherent to that degree in that case of seriousness for sort of an IP matter. Um, but, you know, it, it, I mean, it's interesting because... I mean, part of one of the reasons I quite like this area and have done quite a bit is the interaction between sort of human rights and all rights generally. And, you know, there's always quite a bit of crossover in IP as well, or there could potentially be. I mean, for example, you know, whenever, if you, if you look at Section 12 of the Human Rights Act, which is about interim, in, well, not just interim, but final relief, you know, whenever a court is going to grant relief, which might impact on freedom of expression, it sort of raises the threshold for that sort of injunctive relief. If you look at an interim basis from the sort of American Sanamid test to the sort of the, the test in the in the legislation um, about, the, you know, the court being satisfied that the claimant is, is likely to win a trial. Yeah. And, you know, you sort of think, well, you know, if you look at the sort of 
you look at the trademark cards, for example, and you look at the you look at the functions of absolutely. Um, yeah, if you had a case where, for example, I guess you know the classic one would be like maybe like a, would it be like a smeller like case? I guess where you're saying your thing smells like something else. Presumably, there's a freedom yeah. expression freedom expression argument there. Well, exactly, and if and even if you look at it a bit more esoterically and said, you know, one of the functions of the trademark is meant to be the communication function to convey messages, and you know, freedom of expression is this wide right about imparting information, and it does it can apply to corporate entities as well. You know, you you think well, there's no reason on a in an interim application why you couldn't say, well, the claimant has to show um, that highest higher hurdle effectively. But when you read a lot of the IP injunction things, which are, in essence, restricting the defendant's freedom of speech, for example, to use a mark on the market and communicate messages, they all seem to proceed just on the general American cyanamid basis. Mm. So, you know, I've always been quite so you're, wait, you're waiting the, for one of them where you can argue it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, exactly. And it, it's an interesting one. I mean, I mean, it could even go even more esoterically, for example, on a, an application for security for costs and whether that impacts on freedom of expression to the extent that, you know, if a company has to put in a million pounds into court and they can't use that money, it says, well, I was going to use that money to advertise or communi- you know, communicate messages to customers. Does that, does that sort of, does that bring it within that sort of test as well? It, it's quite, it, I've always been fascinated by sort of jurisprudence and, and human rights and how they relate to um, other areas of law. And obviously, because of the Human Rights Act, um, it, you know, it's, the courts have had to develop the law. Yeah. And, it, and it, it, it just got me there thinking of a couple of things. You know, I was reading some of the press coverage about, um, you know, you know, you'll often see when the press are commenting on court cases that they just get things completely wrong, or particularly when they're annoyed at the result. Yeah, so for example, I went, read one thing about the Markle case, one publication which said, you know, the, the judges denied a jury trial. Well, there was never going to be a jury trial. You know what I mean? And it's, um, it's, and, and, and another misconception is that, yeah, which was in another article was, well, you know, now we're a sovereign state again. This won't happen in the future. You know, sort of assumingly tying that to Brexit where, Brexit and the European Union have got absolutely nothing to do with the sort of Human Rights Act at all, or the um, conven- European Convention of Human Rights. You know, that that sort of grew out of the Council of Europe after the Second World War, and then the Declaration of Human Rights, and, and it pursued from there. And, it, and interestingly, you know, we were one of the sort of leaders in, in the Council of Europe. Winston Churchill was very keen to get that established with the aim of like not having any more wars in Europe. But it's that sort of where things are portrayed that, oh, this is all, and it's this all, is all a sort of, fault. Or are they putting it all it's all place. Europe's fault, you know, it's all Europe's fault and the, all these judges gapping the press. But I think it's important that, you know, the press do take their role responsibly. I mean, I mean, you can look at a couple of the cases last year. I mean, particularly one, the Sikri case, which was to do with the uh, Manchester Arena bombings, not directly, but it was in essence about, um, you know, when the when the bombings happened, they arrested a, a guy, um, I can't remember where he was based, but the reason they'd arrested him was that they'd found that, um, I think it was Salman Abedi, the, the Manchester bomber, had called this guy, sort of close to the time, now, it turned out to be completely innocent. He sort of called in because the guy ran a sort of a website allowing sort of Libyan exchange of money and things. And he just sort of ignored it. I hadn't dealt with him. So he got arrested. And then I think it might have been, I can't remember if it was the mail again, but one of the papers effectively published his name and said, you know, this, this is the guy who's been arrested. He, you know, he was interviewed by the police and released, released without charge because they realized there was a perfectly innocent explanation. But... You know, the, the press then didn't correct the record, and right. he suffered massively from that, as you can imagine. And he he just he brought a privacy case and won. But that sort of shows where the irresponsible journalism can yeah. really damage people. And so it's, I think, the courts. You know, 
And if you look at the Bloomberg case as well, you know, the courts are very keen to say the press has a huge role in society and, you know, it's vital that the press, um, I think one of the judges used something like, don't become the muzzled lapdog of private interests, you know. Um, you know, they, they have a very important role as watchdog and the public interest, but when when they don't act responsibly, they, it's, it's always a bit sort of rich when they sort of come out play, complained and say, this is a, you know, this is completely against freedom of expression and the free press. It's, you know, it's a bit, when you actually read the cases, you can sort of see why the courts have went one way or the other. Now, whether this Megan case, whether they're going to apply for permission to appeal, I suspect they will. Um, just because, why wouldn't they, big. you know, in the I mean, sense I think that, from their point yeah. of view, I mean, every time, presumably every time they do a, um, a, an article like this and, you know, they're adding things in, it's a money spinner for them. So, I mean, to, to, to feel that they have to be more concerned about their behaviour, I can imagine they're, they're not going to want to sit, you know, they don't want to take that line down. So, yeah, I, I guess an appeal's and, very and, likely. Yeah, and I think that raises an interesting point. I mean, if you think about probably the money that the male has made from this, um, made from those publications, it's going to exceed even paying their own and Megan's Meg- and legal costs and any damages. It's prob- They're probably still going to be in profit, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, you typically see damage, you know, with damages from misuse of private information, you know, you exclude the rep- it sort of seems to be relatively clear now that you can't claim damages for reputational damage. Um, but, I mean, what was interesting to me, I was thinking the other day, I was thinking, and I don't know if I've ever seen this, as to whether you could claim an account of profits um, on it, in the sense that, you know, it's a tort. Well, I guess if it's misuse private. the copyright bit, you certainly could, couldn't you? So if you've included the copyright claim, then uh, you've certainly yeah. got, the, uh, you got a, you know, a, a leap pad to uh, go for... Uh, you know, sort of flagrancy uh, damages and things like that. Yeah, and then, and I do sometimes. Again, it's it, I don't know whether it's just being you know being an IP lawyer. I think some of the things we as IP lawyers that we do it doesn't always seem to filter into other areas of law. And I, I don't know whether you know I might be completely wrong on this, but generally, all the, the majority of the da- cases on compensation for misuse of private information are damages cases and it might well be that they're not all they're not ordered as a split trial and ip and there's no election but i'm trying to think of you know probably on in principle i can't see why as a claimant you couldn't ask for an account of profits for the defendant's misuse of private information and you could imagine maybe in this case that you know the male presumably have a way of tracking how much each story's worth than the amount of clicks they get in advertising spend. But that, that was just an interesting point I was thinking the other day because the you know the even in sort of damages misuse of private information, you know, you're you're talking you know, a couple hundred thousand probably. You know, for example in libel, you know, there's a sort of sea ceiling of about three hundred thousand on them. And that's the sort of most serious um things such as what you know sort of worldwide spread saying someone's a terrorist you know yeah. obviously special damages can be added to that so if, you know if you've lost a contract or something like that but just looking at general damages you know they the, the awards are, they're not huge in monetary terms if that makes sense and it was interesting to think well you know, could you go for an account of profits on a case like this where the mail has no doubt probably made a lot of money out of it but there we are. It was just not me oh, no, sort I mean, of thinking it's, it's terribly again, doesn't it? I mean, because obviously an account of profits is is something that's open to a court to make in any cases, you know, because it's an equitable remedy, isn't it? So exactly, I can't see any reason exactly. why they wouldn't. But uh, God, yeah. so this is such an interesting area. I mean, you this is not, but obviously this is not the only area that that you do. You, you, I mean, uh, at Brandsmith, you, you're doing the full range, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, look, my in terms of you know. Historically and still presently, my background is in IP litigation, and you know I've always done a, a fair amount of um, the media privacy work. You know, I, I, you know, in no way is it the sort of level shillings will do because that's what they're purely set up for. But you know, I'd probably say a quarter of my practice is this type of work, and the rest of it is um, IP litigation. So it's an area I've always had an interest in, in addition to the IP list, and it's an area that the firm is doing an awful lot of work in. You know, we've, 
you know, if you look at some of the cases we've had, um, you know, you know the the case against the male for Roberto Carlos, um, you know, we've obtained quite a few sort of privacy injunctions, if you like, or at least undertakings on the eve of that. Um, you know, we did a we did a case for uh, which which would, would, is public at, at the minute. It's um, for Aaron Wambasaka, who's a Manchester United player. You know, we uh, in terms of privacy, so we do see, quite a lot in this one, area. Is that the there's a story? Is, is this the one to do with? Is it an ex girlfriend or a, a former? Yeah, partner? yeah, exactly. And it, it's on Bailey as well. You know, it's not. I'm not revealing anything that isn't public knowledge. But you know, we do quite a bit in this area. And it tends to be. You know, we do. You know, a lot of it is because we ask for a lot of people in the public eye, particularly in sport and that sort of thing. You often, you know, in a lot of our, we do particularly do a lot of work in football. I don't do a lot of that, but a few of our guys uh, do a lot with player and agent side and club side. And um, you know, historically, you know, people like Adam have always had links within this sort of entertainment world. You know, we get a fair amount of this type of work and it, it's fascinating but in terms of you know my a lot of my day their practice as you know is sort of IP litigation and yeah. um, I don't touch non-contentious stuff I, I always sort of say <laughs> you know the thought of reviewing a, a sort of contract is sort of brings me out in boils if you like you know it's just uh, <laughs> I, but I, I think people are generally they're either contentious lawyers or they're non-contentious and I think when you're a contentious lawyer it's Sometimes it's you know, it's it, it is it, it's great in some ways. It's you know that sort of. But so, I, I guess I think sometimes you, the, the, the five o'clock letter on a Friday that just boils your blood. I guess is the uh, is the one downside. It is, but then you know there's it's just you know I think you it can sort of annoy you, but then I think if you know if you, you, you want to, you to remove, remove your personality from it and just see it as part of one big ridiculous game yeah i think so i think there's a degree of that but you know if you know when you know for example when you're in trial it you come out of it and you're sort of knackered and i think part of it is just the adrenaline of being in trial i mean i always say i don't know how the barristers do it um because you know this it's the adrenaline's running high enough for the solicitors, but you know the barristers are the ones taking the bullets. But yeah. there is that degree of sort of adrenaline in litigation that I think you either like or you don't like. Um, and you know, I obviously quite like it, and that's you know that's been the sort of foundation of my practice: litigation, IP litigation with the media privacy work. But yeah, Brandsmith, you know, we so we obviously start, do. So did Brandsmith start? more on the litigation side or has it always been both sides of things? Um, yeah, I mean, we, um, I mean, we started, we're, you know, we're going to be, we're, we're, we'll be, we'll be around six years old later this year. Um, you know, not literally, obviously, but you know, the, the, the firm and, and, and the people within the firm have obviously been around a lot longer than that. Um, you know, it started with three people in a small office in, the old patent office, Southampton Buildings. And, you know, we've grown now to having two offices, Manchester and London, and probably around, it's embarrassing, I don't know the exact <laughs> figure, but probably around between 25 and 30 people of which, you know, nearly all of those people are lawyers or trained to be lawyers. You know, we do have yeah. non-lawyers in the firm and they Absolutely. play a critical role in yeah. the in the yeah. office. You see, you but, see people you know, and we, they say, oh, we've got we've got 100 people at our firm. And you go, okay, well, that's great. How many people are lawyers and, and you know, how many people are senior people? I mean, you guys have <laughs> got a substantial number of senior, really respected people. You've then, I think you've done fantastically well in terms of uh, yeah. building up the people. And I think, am I right in thinking that m most of the people at your firm are homegrown? Um... Yes, I mean, uh, I mean that's an interesting question. I think it's when we sort of, you know, when Adam started the firm, I think part of it was to be have a different sort of image to, you know, traditional law firm and a lot of the stereotypes of law firms that lawyers don't like, you know, sort of, um, it, it, you know, without being sort of drogery, you know, old grey men in suits with um, shirts, and, you know, with ties on and fighting between the partners and sort of every billable hour you have to put down and, you know, just no, no sort of consideration of the client. We want to be a different firm, both in image and feel, but also the, the way the firm's set up in that, 
you know, we want to be a true meritocracy in that, you know, the people who work the hardest and do the best will progress in the firm. And it's not about, well, are you a man or a woman or, you know, how long have you been at the firm and do you know the partners well and stuff like that. It's about real sort of meritocracy. Mm. And yeah, one of the things we wanted to do ideally, and which we still do, is to grow the grow the future partners of the firm through the firms. You know, you would maybe be a paralegal trainee and then you would qualify with the firm and then you'd progress provided, you know, you did the right things. Um, but, I mean, obviously that, because of the way we've grown so much, it, that has its limits because, you know, it's, it, I suppose it's a bit like you, know, yeah. you, you can't grow someone, you know, it's not some sort of do, lab- laboratory problem. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And so we have hired laterally in terms of senior fee earners and things like that. And, but, you know, it's very important that, that they're the right sort of cultural fit for the firm. And, you know, we, so far, so good. You know, we've, you know, but I guess now you're never... at this stage, I guess now you're bigger, now bringing laterals in, they're coming into an established culture. Whereas I guess if it had been earlier on, you know, and you see it sometimes, you know, where firms, they, they try and grow really, really quickly and they do loads and loads of laterals in a department and, and then the culture's mm-hmm. lost because actually, you know, they brought it, there were X number of partners and they've got a load more partners and they've all got a different mindset. But presumably you guys it... worked really, really hard on the culture and the mindset. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we are, I think we're at the stage now where I think, you know, we are sort of a, particularly for the IP work, we're a sort of real sort of living, living organism, if that makes sense, that, you know, we are, we have built up a certain reputation. People sort of know us within the IP world. And, you know, we've got that a degree of credibility behind the firm now. And, you know, that is attracting different people to the firm, which, maybe three or four years ago, we wouldn't. I mean, even just an example, you know, we advertised for newly qualified recently and the quality of application coming in was, was phenomenal. And that was a real, to us, we were like, sort of really pleased about that, that we were getting applications from people at, you know, Magic Circle firms, or other big IT firms. Um, and to us, it was a sort of recognition of where we are now in the market and where we've come to. But obviously, the work's just starting now. We need to take the next level. But Absolutely. it does raise interesting questions, particularly now with the way the world's changed effectively and the way people work. I think the you know locations and borders, if you like, are sort of irrelevant to a degree now. And I think going forward, there will be a lot of hybrid working. And so... You know, a year ago, maybe if you were recruiting for someone senior, meant you know to be within the London office. I mean, the way the offices work, we're sort of you know one firm with two offices in essence, and there's a lot of cross working. But you, know, you would probably think, well, actually, you know, we we need someone who's based in London to come in the office every day and stuff like that. But now the way the world changed, and probably the way that a lot of practitioners have mm. changed and want different things, they want. You know, they probably thought, I want a different life. I want to spend more time at home or whatever. It sort of opens up a complete sort of unlocks a completely different sort of realm of opportunities, both Absolutely. for us and for them. And, I was you know, talking to someone a couple of days ago who, I mean, they, they were looking at their firm. They've got a, an office up north and they were saying that, you know, they were looking for people in that office and they were predominantly looking around that office and they were saying, it's pretty much impossible for us because there just aren't enough people in that particular local market. And I think what you're saying is yeah. right. You know, now you'll be, you know, spotting who the stars are, you know, regardless of where they're based in the UK, because if they're working remotely, it doesn't matter. Exactly. And I think a lot of people will, I mean, look, the, the lockdown's been frustrating for a lot, probably everyone. And, you know, people want things to go back to sort of normal to a degree, but I think it has opened people's eyes a lot. And, and you can probably think of, you know, someone who's maybe a partner at a, you know, a sort of, you know, large firm who's got a good client following and building a lot of money. And they're sort of thinking, I'm a bit sick of this life now. You know, I maybe want to, I want to sort of work maybe the sort of type of keystone model, but be able to service that work still. Because obviously, you know, it's all very well having an awful lot of work, but unless you've got the sort of bodies to help you service it. And so I think there will be a move to a lot more sort of big players in essence wanting to be sort of 
work that sort of consultancy role, maybe not have the day-to-day stress of being a partner of running the business and all that. They just want to say, well, look, I've got all this work. I want a, a better life balance and I want to keep more, more of the revenue, frankly. So I think we're going to see a big change in law too, as you, we've just said, yeah. location got, being irrelevant. If you've got a system, if you've built, if you've created that infrastructure within a firm where people can just plug in and they can do all the bits they need to do easily, then, you know, from the point of view of the, the uh, administration, then yeah, and that that certainly allows lawyers, I mean, I, you know, I, I used to work at Keystone, so I know what the Keystone model's like. I know how well their administration works internally. This isn't an advert for Keystone, but, you know, they they, do, <laughs> they were the first in, I think they were amongst, if not the first to do it. And from a tech point of view, that it's absolutely spot on internally. You know, you can work without too much in terms of administrative um, assistance. I think that's the way they built it, you know, and um, obviously, you know, you mentioned Keystone. I think the thing about Keystone, which was different, was the way the sort of profit share for the fee earner. And I think I think that's going to be, as you say, the way forward. If you've got a lawyer who is bringing in a, you know, they're doing a big number, that maybe if they're even a partner at a firm, you know, they've got that huge pressure over their head where, you know, they're getting the published profit per equity partner numbers. And so there's, you know, the ongoing pressure to bill a big number, uh, them and their team. It's just it's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah, and you know, and then the infighting between quite you know, partners, all that, particularly for work, you know, if you like credits and originations and that's my client and you know, when there's conflict saying, Oh well, you know, I, I really want to bring this important. case <laughs> Yeah, my client's more important and then having, you know, the fightings over drawings and well, no, I want this much, you shouldn't get this much. You can see why a lot of people who are sort of established might think, you know what, I can't be bothered with this anymore. You know, I want to effectively work with a firm where I've got the resource, credibility, you know, and we'll just have a, a fair share on a profit split. So, Absolutely. I think know, it's I think changed. I think a couple re- of years ago, I think, yeah. you know, firms like, I mean, I don't have, you know, firms like Keystone, I think, you know, there was a perception that it was the, you know, the elephant's graveyard. It was, all, you know, where, where where senior lawyers went to <laughs> die. Um, but I don't sort think... Sort of like the... what. Like, what's that South Park episode with the island of misfit mascots or something? Yeah, you know, that sort of... So you went um, if you couldn't work with anyone or you were just tired and wanted to phase yourself out for a couple of years. I don't think... I mean, it's not like that anymore. Um, But I guess the other part, presumably, and this is, I would imagine, it's a big thing within your firm, is that means that as as a lawyer, it is not just about a firm, but it's about your personal brand and your personal awareness in the market. Yeah, and I think, look, it's, you know, historically, if you look at the way that, you know, lawyers have generated work within firms, a lot of it is is about sort of personal marketing. I mean, look, you, you get, you'll get some clients who just want to use Clifford Chance or Alan and Alvary because it's Clifford Chance and Alan and Alvary and they've got to they've got corporate governance and they want to be able to justify it to the board. And, you know, if the board, if the case goes wrong, they say, well, we used, we used Clifford Chance. But, you know, within, particularly I think within our industry, Aaron, that there is a, a lot of it about your sort of personal standing and reputation of, you know, giving credibility to clients. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, there's an element of, yes, the firm has to market itself and, you know, that's something we have been keen to sort of generate more, more work through the firm rather than, you know, myself or Adam or Mike or whatever. And, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot more of that. But there's always going to be, I think, a role for lawyers or an important role for individuals to generate their own work and, you know, have that credibility when their clients are looking to want to instruct that firm. You know, I think it's always going to be, particularly I think in our industry, an element of, well, we like the firm, but we, we don't really like that individual or we've heard good things about them or whatever. So, so yeah, so, I think so that's right. The point is that, but that means if you're a junior lawyer coming through, you've got to think about what those skills are. You've got to start building those networks and that awareness as early as you can, not get to yeah. five, ten years in and go, oh, I'd like to be a partner, but I haven't got anything. I haven't, done, I haven't spent the time it, doing this. Exactly, and that was one thing that we, when the firm started, we were, very keen on and still are of getting junior fee earners, whether they're you know paralegals, trainees, associates, 
into the mindset of trying to generate their own work. And we did that through various ways, which we still do in terms of how people, you know, are paid um, for work they originate. But, you know, support around that by giving people, for example, a marketing budget and saying, go and spend it on what you want. You've got this much for the year. You know, spend what you want. If you want to go out to a nightclub and spend it all in one night, great. But, you know, at the end of the year, justify it. But I think that was quite unique and probably still is, is to, I think at a lot of firms, you know, you're not encouraged to develop the business. And, you know, some firms you might never speak to a client until you're five years qualified or, you know, the, the partners go out and win the work. And Absolutely. you're not bringing through those fee earners with those skills. And you're right, when they get to 11, 12 years and all, yes, they might be, doing very good work and but a lot of that work might be internally fair absolutely but then yeah, how do you then go out on your own yeah you know? i mean i heard exactly I, i've heard that story from you know american law firms where the you know the rates are like a thousand pound an hour and you you know you, you ask them you know, well, how, how do you get clients and they go well they get referred in from the other offices um i, I couldn't yeah. you know i don't know anybody who would pay a thousand pound an hour for what i do um uh, you know, and they're American law firms, so they're on you know huge money, and they're doing huge hours. Um, but you know, with a thousand pounds an hour rates comes, you know, the client expects to be able to pick up the phone at any time during the day and call you. And you go, so you're effectively locked into a horrible situation where you have to, be, you know, be at the beck and call of your clients twenty four seven. And if you ever left, you're going to have to take a massive pay drop because. If you wanted to go and get a job on a similar salary at another firm, they're going to go, well, where's your following? And you go, I haven't got one. Yeah, exactly. And I think the problem is it's not encouraged the firms where, for example, at Francis, we do. And, you know, some of our juniors, you know, if you, well, if you want to say non-partners, which encompasses quite a lot of people in the firm, they're bringing in significant amounts of business each year in developing client networks. And, and like what we really want is just to say, look, we want to develop lawyers who one day could leave and, start their own firm with clients. And that might seem a bit odd from a law firm thinking, what, you want to spend time developing these people who, who then are in a position just to leave. But, mm. you know, that was how we wanted a different approach to law of like, we wanted to develop really good lawyers, but develop it in a, a nice working environment, which develops a good culture. And I think we've done really well at that, you know, and I think obviously the problem is, if you grow and get bigger, how do you maintain those things? Yeah. But that's just, inevitable sort of you might get growing pains here and there but touchwood so far we you know we, we've done all right but yeah. you're right it's you know generally a lot of lawyers they're 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 never they're never encouraged to develop business and then they get to a certain stage and it's right well you you know you may be part of level now and if you want to move to another firm or start up on your own it's well have you got any clients or not really and i think that's a real problem but i think partly that might be you know, old law firm attitudes, the partners, you know, the, the partners at the top think, well, we don't want anyone, you know, we don't want any threats from anyone. We just want them to work and we don't yeah. want them having their own clients, or, you know. And that's how they may have, They may have uh, inherited the clients and they just want to keep hold of the clients they've got, you know, they and they're worried about yeah. people taking work elsewhere. So they're super protective over the, the client relationships because they know that's, you know, lose a client like a big client and that's uh, a massive part of their drawing is gone so they're you know maybe acting out of fear and they haven't actually developed i mean I've, I've seen it before in firms where the partners have inherited and they never actually had the skills themselves uh, or they didn't have it yeah. to the level that you'd expect in a firm like that um it's but it sounds like i mean it sounds like you're doing it completely the right way which is they develop their own uh, relationships they nurture those relationships yeah. in the nicest possible way that some of them, like with all of us, some of those relationships aren't going to last, but some of them will flourish. Um, and presum- yeah. And, and, and presumably exactly. they'll, get it's about stage, developing. they'll get to that stage where they've got, uh, you know, a bunch of clients and they'll either be, you know, you'll either say to them, yep, uh, we'd like to offer you partnership when the time comes or it won't happen. And they'll have, in the meantime, if they leave in, you know, in all the time they've been with you, they've developed a business that means that, They've been proper professionals. You haven't had to watch over their shoulder. They've, you know, built work into the firm, and it's it's worked exactly. And yeah, it's and that's you know what we want to develop when we develop lawyers in house. We want to develop lawyers who are obviously technically outstanding, but also have lots of other skills. And if that means that lawyer might one day think, "Well, I'm going to do my own thing," but brilliant, you know, mm. fair play to them. But you know, at the same time, we'd like to think that because of the firm we are and the culture and 
you know, we don't have a lot of the red tape, lots of firms have, you know, we can, we can just make decisions, the partners, you know, we don't have to think, well, it's got to go through seven committees and file a report. You know, you'd hope that people would think, well, I'm really, I'm really happy here, you know, because it, look, it's, well, they're all going to have, co- they're gonna all gonna have start- colleagues, aren't they? They're all going to have people they know in other firms, and they'll have seen the fact that the way that other firms work. And so, from that point of view, if they think that you know they've been on this path, and their colleagues, they're you know in other firms are at a similar you know a similar level of um, experience, are you know some way down the pipe in terms of where they are as yeah. overall business it- owners. It, oh, come on, they've got to understand that that's it's the place to stay. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, obviously you never know what's going to happen in the future, but, you know, so far, so good. And I think, you know, clients' perceptions of law firms and what they expect of their lawyers are changing a lot. I think, you know, clients, you know, a lot of the people I speak to on a day basis are the lawyers because, you know, a lot of our clients have in-house legal teams, but they're, you know, they're just normal, normal people. You know, a lot of them relatively young and, you know, they don't expect their lawyers to be in shirts and ties and suits. In fact, most of them would think it was old if you turned to an eating in a suit because they, they wouldn't be, you know? Um, and, you know, I think that the, you know, the way the world's changing now, I think, you know, a lot of general counsel there, you know, they're getting pressures from above about budget, but they're expecting more from their lawyers. Not necessarily that they're expecting, you know, you to be doing work for nothing, but they're expecting you to be embracing things like technology to make processes faster and stuff like that. And they are looking for more flexibility on fees and not the old just hourly rates. And I think if law firms don't adapt to that, then they're going to be left behind, I think. Yeah, because there'll be firms like yours who will go, well, what is it, you know, let's talk about this. What is it you want? And I guess the other part is the more that firms like yours get, it sounds almost bad to say firms like yours get established because you guys have won you know you you are out there i mean you know i know you know from talking to you just a, a couple of days ago you, you know the firm was listed um in one of the industry uh for one of the industry awards shortlisted is that right yeah the i think they managing i the managing ip one in the design section um which yeah. again it's great i mean look we've had quite a lot of you know accolades from you know the, the directories in, in terms of you know Placings in League of Five Hundred and Chambers, and you know we've done. Yeah, so if you were looking you know, at the we've done old, quite well. If you were looking at the old school way, where people are saying, you know, old school law firm, where they go, oh yeah, get yourself in the Legal Five Hundred, get yourself in Chambers and Partners, all that kind of stuff, you're doing that as well. So if a, you know, if an, an in-house general counsel needs to point to something and say, oh, I, I took them on because they're great, you know, and there they are in the rankings, well, you've got that as well. Yeah, so, exactly, and it's all part of you know, it's all part of. Like anything, it's you know you've got to have a degree of credibility, and look as I mentioned before, there's inevitably always going to be certain clients who they just potentially because the people who are, in, who are instructing law firms are doing a bit of ass covering, if you like, and <laughs> um, because they've got eventually they need to go to people higher in the chain and justify why they they, they use the firm, and you can still imagine that. You know, the example I mentioned earlier where they, they think, well, if I instruct Clifford Chance or Alan and Alfrey, well, if it goes wrong, I say, well, I instructed Magic Circle for what you expect. But um, I think a lot of clients are more savvy than that. And they think, well, actually. Absolutely. Horses, and I think this horses is, and I think this that is, kind of stuff as well. Exactly. I mean, I think and, people And realize. I think this is the way firms are going to go. They're going to, you think eventually what you'll get, you'll just get lots of specialist firms doing lots of, you'll probably always have the Allen and Alvarez and Clifford Chances, but I think other than that, I think you'll probably get more and more boutique specialist firms who yeah, are mean, sort of the best doing thing for one, one area. Just to say, A&O, just to say, okay, well, well, we'll be at the top and we'll sub out to the best people <laughs> in the nicest Yeah, possible I mean, look, way. they've got some excellent practitioners. I mean, you know, they've down people like that, yeah. but it's, you know, I think a lot of clients, they, they do want and they are more attracted to a smaller boutique sort of firm. But, and that's where we benefit, but inevitably there's always going to be those clients who want a magic circle firm. Yeah. I mean, that's just how it works, but yeah. it's an interesting market, but it is interesting to see the shift in what clients are expecting from lawyers and value and how their lawyers are. And, you know, there's a big, and I think, you know, there is a lot of firms potentially in difficulty because of how they've historically been structured and their cost base and, you know, how much they need to generate each year, whether it's because they've got really 
fancy officers in central London or whether it's because every partner's got a secretary and, you know, a part, you know, would never think of being able to type, type an email themselves. You know, they're far too important to people. Whereas, you know, we, we, I'm happy to type an email on my own, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's it, Um, isn't it? You've got to look at, I mean, it's it's sad to say, you know, we've got to do cost cutting, but the reality, it's not cost cutting. It's just looking at where, where's the value, you know, where, where do you put, where do you get the value from and what, what are the, things you can remove i guess to enable you to yeah. offer an even better deal to a client i mean it, you, yeah it's modernizing and looking at you know how the world's changing how communication's changing what clients expect you know and i think if you don't adapt quickly or you can't adapt quickly because of the way the firm's structured or whatever things like that then you're going to run into difficulty yeah because a new entrant who's start who's been set up on the basis of all that is going to start nibbling at you <laughs> correct yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> not, not literally, hopefully, no, but yeah, no, I know no, you I mean. That would, yeah, that would be just strange. <laughs> Although, yeah, 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 exactly. there are stories about some lawyers who I probably think they wouldn't literally nibble on you. Anyway, right, on that note. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> before, we, before we say anything where we're going to end up in the Gazette, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or end up in one. Yeah, end up in a privacy case because we've disclosed some private story about a lawyer that we didn't. Yeah, know well, exactly. Yeah, that would be that would be quite sort of remarkable, <laughs> wouldn't it? But. Although I'm sure you, you'd uh, you, you would uh, mention at that point the uh, the balance between the, uh, the the competing rights. So that would be fine. Um, right. Well, thank exactly. you so much, Andy. It has been an absolute pleasure to uh, to to speak to you and to talk about all these subjects. And um, so for people who've listened, they've heard about Brandsmiths, they've heard about you, and they want to do they want to talk to you more. They want to do business with you. How do they get in touch with you? Um, well, I'm usually the best way to get hold of me is by email. I sort of constantly monitoring emails, okay. which is either a good or a bad thing. Well, we'll put but that yeah, in the, my we'll put email that in the show notes. We'll put your email address. Yeah, in, in the show notes. And yeah. um, and are you are you on all the socials, or you're not really a social socially networking? I'm not really person. a social. I mean, the you know, I'm on LinkedIn. Right. People can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's okay. as far as I go on on that sort of stuff. But right. you know, our website got a lot of information. But yeah, people can find me on LinkedIn. I'll just drop me an email. Fab. All right. Well, here's uh, here's hoping to more and more success for Brandsmiths. Okay. Thanks, Thanks so very much, Aaron. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review and subscribe. Don't forget to check out the links in the show notes for more details of how to work with my guests or me. And of course, don't forget to take advantage of any offers mentioned in the episode. Now, until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>